I would like us to turn for a little time to the words we read in Luke's Gospel in chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. I'm reading again at verse 39. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Remember me when thou comest in to thy kingdom. We read there in the prophecy of Isaiah the very familiar words, those words which are familiar to, I'm sure, all of us. My word will not return to me void or empty, but it will accomplish what I please. It will prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. And I'm sure we can (coughs) say our amen to that, especially if this morning we are to be found in Christ Jesus. That word of which the apostle, of which the prophet spoke, or what was given to him by God, my word will not return empty, but it will accomplish a purpose for which God sent it. And of course, everyone that is to be sitting here at the table, and maybe there are others who are outside of the table, and yet have a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. But at this stage, maybe they do feel unfit for one reason or another, and that they are not at the table. But for each and every one of us who have an assurance of the love of Christ, an assurance for eternity, that what the Lord Jesus Christ has done on our our behalf, that that will bring to pass for each and every one of us. But of course also it will have its evident token upon those who have constantly refused to accept that word of Christ that word of God. We may think that if we refuse certain things in this life, and especially those things upon which God has made a command, that we repent and believe, that somehow or other we duck and dive underneath. And we think that such a word and testimony has no bearing upon us. But of course it has. Every word that has ever been dropped into your hearing, since ever you became aware of what God's word is, But every word will have its effect. It's a savour of life unto some, but it will be a savour of death unto death to others. And to to contemplate the word of God being a savour of death, the providence of God, because of our unbelief, surely ought to make us shudder and make us think. We might complain about God's providences upon us. Maybe God has laid upon you providences that are very difficult to bear. But yet that does not in any way reduce the significance and the importance of that word for which God sent in, was sent into this world, even through the very person of Jesus Christ, that we can escape it. How can we escape if we neglect so great salvation? And that very testimony is played out here on this scene a scene above all scenes in the history of mankind. 
and yet a scene that has far-reaching consequences for every single one of us. Some people might want to think to themselves, well, it has nothing to do with me because, well, I'm an atheist, or I'm a humanist, so it has nothing to do with me. But that's not true. It encapsulates every single one, and none will escape if we neglect so great a salvation. But my concern this morning, or we're into afternoon now, is that we consider for a moment or two something of the event that has taken place here. I don't want to use the word exactly played out here because it is so momentous and it's so unlimited as far as time is concerned. Because as it affected those who were involved in this whole scenario of the crucifixion of Christ and to those who denied Christ, for each and every one, there was the word of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And that action of Christ in experiencing, yes, the condemnation because of your sin and mine, experiencing the hatred that was laid out against him by the authorities, whether these would be political authorities or whether they were religious authorities. Each and every one of them would give an answer or will have to give an answer on the day of judgment for what was happening. But the event... And this, these three crosses have a great message to teach us. A message that we would do heed good to heed to them. I want to centre my thoughts mainly on this thief who responds to the word made flesh. The word in Jesus Christ. The word and the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. The very example of the Lord Jesus Christ in the sacrificial giving of himself. A ransom for his people. Because this thief in the cross, he makes an amazing prayer that is absolutely full of theology. The kind of theology that maybe even many of the disciples didn't fully understand. Remember me when thou comest in to thy kingdom. But it wouldn't be right to carry on with this man until at least we got some kind of background of where he had come from. He and his friends. He and the friends of this world who were, yes, base in their character, doing things that were totally unsociable and were deserving, as the authorities of the time believed, deserving of death. In fact, that is the communication that is going on between these two men. And as far as the account in Mark's Gospel is concerned, both these men were railing against the Lord Jesus. Save thyself and us. You ask yourself, what were they anticipating to be saved from? Save thyself and us. They wanted to, as it were, escape the rigours of death. And maybe they did not know what was before them in that death. Maybe they were looking for a second opportunity to have a second life the side of eternity. But that wasn't going to happen. And no matter how they might have wanted to plea in an <coughs> ignorant fashion, save thyself and us. That was not going to hold any water at all in Christ. You see, the railing against Jesus is something that will be given an answer to on the day of judgment. And especially by this man who would not repent and who lived constantly in that state. This thief that we want to look at, he recognizes the state, or at least he has come to recognize the state, in exactly the same way, I'm sure, although... The providence might be different. 
the providence of his life might be different in drawing him towards Christ to that which has been your experience. You and I have not been set up in the gallows or somewhere on a cross, but we might have come through maybe hard providences that have caused an awakening to us. Something maybe even like the Philippian jailer. An earthquake arose. He was afraid. He was shaking. He would have killed himself. But the church of Christ at the time, represented in Paul and Silas, called out to him, do thyself no harm. This thief, he recognizes what he is. And he says, we receive our due reward. This man, referring to Jesus, he has done nothing wrong. I often ask myself, where did that come from? After all, just moments before, he was railing against Jesus. But then I'm sure I could talk to many people here who found themselves in a state of gracelessness one moment, and then the next moment they found themselves under the heaviness of the Spirit of God with great conviction that their life has been a sham, a waste. He was telling his partner in crime to be quiet. Now again, I want to refer to this a little bit because, you know, when you think of this thief and the other thief, both of them must have been racking in pain. We know of the pain that Jesus was going through on the cross. But these two men, without any hope in this world, and the pain that they must have been going through, it's almost unimaginable what like it would be because crucifixion was not a painless activity. Far, far greater is it not the case that what they were going through was beyond the measure of man's ability to cope with. Such was the reasoning why they would try and give them that awful stuff to drink to try and deaden the pain. But in the midst of all this pain and racking, this man, this thief, turns to his friend and says, this man does nothing amiss. We receive the due rewards of our deeds. Was he admitting twofold? Was he admitting that justice was being done as far as the state was concerned? Was it the case that he was acknowledging that yes, eternity is before him, whatever he might have thought that to be beforehand, but he knew fine that where he was going was not going to be to a heavenly bliss. Some people have this idea that when we die, that no matter how we lived or what we believed, they're going to into some heavenly place, free from all the pain and suffering of this world. How many are under a delusion as far as that is concerned? This man recognized condemnation. We are condemned, he is saying, not just by the society that we have been criminals in, but we are being condemned as well. By God. This is what he is saying. We indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing amiss. Why does he say this? Is he making a different kind of appeal to his friend? Well, he was making the same appeal as his friend before this. He's making a different appeal now, but this is a prayer that he is now going to make towards the Lord. He says to Jesus, Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Now again, that opens up a tremendous amount in the life of any single one. And you don't need to hang on a cross to have your life right up in front of you. And many that have been, have been in the state of death almost and realized their life is ebbing out from them and they're seeing their past hurtling towards them. They're experiencing within their heart and soul a condemnation 
maybe something of which even the Apostle would allude to. There is no condemnation to them that are in Christ. What was the condemnation? That every evil deed had its due reward. This man knew that his life was about to close. And the statement that follows, the prayer that follows, is not a statement of fear. At least not the kind of fear that was uttered before this. There is a calmness in the spirit, I would suggest. When you look at the way that the words are formulated here in his appeal or his prayer to the Lord Jesus Christ. He said to Jesus, Lord, remember me. Acknowledging the person of Christ, whatever mocking had been going on before, something had changed, something had witnessed to his heart and to his soul that, yes, things are now different. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. He hadn't time, maybe, to rush and pick up a Bible and see if he could search for a scripture that in some way or other would be enabled to cool him down or give him some kind of comfort. I think that there is something to be said in what Jesus himself says, and maybe I've said this here before, but something that is important of what Jesus said right at the very beginning on the cross, the very statement that Jesus made there. Some commentators allude to that, that when Jesus said... Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. One of the things that is the experience of every man or woman in this world, if they live in this world and rub shoulders with this world, one thing that they don't know very much about or experience, and that is forgiveness. Maybe this man, because of his lifestyle, didn't know what it was to be forgiven by anybody, because after all, his life did not deserve it. And as he says, we deserve the condemnation. This is our due reward. Was this the very first time that the warbling words of Jesus, spoken out from the cross in the midst of his pain and his agony and what he was doing, did that have a singular effect upon him? Lord, remember me, the one who has just heard the Son of God, the Saviour of the world, whatever he might have thought or what he might have meant when he Ask that Jesus, if thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. That was a taunting, but now it's different. He recognizes Jesus as Lord. He appeals to the Lord of all the ends of the earth, the eternal Son, the one that was sent, the Word made flesh, who dwelt among us, beholding his glory. What it was for that thief to experience the words of Jesus, Father, forgive them. And there is no testimony greater to the soul of the sin sinner who is locked in sin and sees that there is only one way of escape and make an appeal to the one who alone can forgive. Nobody else would forgive this man for what he had done. There was going to be no reprieve. There was no attempt to call upon the authorities to release them from this pain and this suffering. Well, we know what way they would do it. In order to hasten their death, they would break their legs or something. But he knew, this man knew, there was no backtracking. There was no way back. The only way was forward. And the only way was Christ. And he says to Jesus, remember me. That opens up a catalogue. Can you imagine asking Jesus to remind us of ourselves? What we have been? What kind of stories would be written? What would be released? The great press release on each and every one of us. Well, after all, Jesus knew much more about this man than he even knew about himself. 
Oh yes, criminal he was, and we can use the language of those who would prosecute any criminal. But we think of Jesus. There was, if we think of this thief on the cross and what Jesus says, which we'll come to in a moment or two, this thief appealing to Jesus, remember me. There was nothing meritorious in him. He couldn't reflect back in his life at all at this point because he knew he was condemned. And he probably believed that he was condemned by God. But it doesn't stop him making this appeal. Remember me. Based on the fact that Christ is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to a knowledge of the truth. Now I don't know how much he knew of scripture, of divine revelation. In fact, we often maybe ask ourselves, how much did we know? Maybe we know, knew a lot more, even to our shame. Those who are still rebellious and unrepentant and have listened to the gospel of Jesus Christ time and time again and are unmoved and unsaved. He was a man who probably, because of his whole lifestyle, portrays and betrays his whole character, debauched. So he's got nothing to commend himself to Jesus. All my righteousnesses, he would say, I'm sure, to himself. They're like filthy rags, even if he knew that scripture at all. Maybe we would struggle to find a scripture that would fit the bill. But he knew. He could make no appeal with regard to his conduct of life. The way that he lived, he can make no appeal to that. Why? Because he was hell deserving. And the only, the only way out was by looking and turning himself towards the Lord Jesus and say, remember me, poor, wretched sinner, on the very precipice of hell. You don't need to be someone up on a cross, being crucified, punished for all the things that we have done wrong against society, to be standing or hanging over the precipice of hell. Every single one that refuses Christ are in that position. Everyone. If we refuse the Lord Jesus, we are, our position in relation to time and to eternity is looking over into the precipice. Surely there is none here that would want to be tipped in the balance over there. Certainly that would seem from what narrative is suggesting in Scripture was the state of the other thief. And we must never forget him because he himself is part of the word of God and its testimony to any soul that relaxes back and sits in his laurels and thinks that all is well when all is not well. For this thief, he makes an appeal to the only one possible, the one who has the words of eternal life. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. I think it's a beautiful expression in so many ways. And as I suggested already, there is deep theology in what he's saying. And he had great understanding, much more maybe even than we who proclaim his word. But he knew that there was a kingdom. Oh yes, a gracious, merciful kingdom. An eternal kingdom. A time and an experience where they would be at peace and secure. The souls of believers out of their death made perfect in holiness and to immediately pass into glory. The thief in the cross is the great argument against the Roman Catholic theology that speaks of purgatory. There was no purgatory for this man. The blood of Jesus Christ cleansed him from all sin. The blood of Christ justified him. When he asked Jesus to remember him when he came into his kingdom, did he have any doubt as to whether or not he might get there. He certainly wasn't being presumptuous 
But one thing was sure, he knew who this Jesus was, and he knew what he could gain from Jesus, the very forgiveness of sin and the acceptance into his kingdom. Imagine being translated from that state of sin and misery in the moment in the twinkling of an eye, straight in to the presence of God. Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom, he says to Jesus. And Jesus' response, as it is the case with every single one of us, his response to every penitent sinner is, come, welcome. Jesus' response to this thief is full. It is free as far as the gospel is concerned. There is nothing being withheld from this man, no more than it is withheld from any one of us here. When we repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are assured doesn't matter what tomorrow brings. Today tells us assuredly we will ever be with the Lord. If tomorrow is our day of demise and we believe in Christ, we will be assured. Jesus says to him, today thou will be with me in paradise. I made the suggestion that this man's turning point may have been the very words of Jesus as the forgiver. The one of all the crowds, of all his, this man's enemies, and he was one of their enemies, And yet here was one who could forgive. Who can forgive sin but Christ alone? But even more so, it's amazing that I can believe that Christ can forgive my sin. Verily says Jesus, today thou wilt be with me in paradise. What a blessing, what an assurance. Dying in peace. Even although his death was going to be painful for this man, he was going to suffer physically, of course he was. But was not, what was not going to be taken from him was eternal life to experience Jesus. Verily I say unto thee, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Free peace, a glorious peace. Some commentators are not too sure as to how to express all that's been stated here because it is a tremendous mystery. But paradise is certainly a place where there will be no pain, no suffering. Imagine brought into the very presence of God, the spirit of this man going into glory at the very point of his death. Just think about it. One moment in a state of unbelief, the next moment assured of eternal life. Thief on the cross is a reminder to all of us, a testimony to every single one of us, that there is life and that there is hope. If you have Professor Finlayson's book, A Just God and a Saviour, He does a very interesting analysis of this event of the three crosses. And he relates to us there his thinking of it. He says one is dying as a consequence of his sin. Another is dying for sin. Another is dying, yes, because he has been a sinful man. But he is not dying without hope. Where will you and I be? We come to sit at the table this morning. We come assuredly, do we not, and believe and trust in the living of the true God, that whatever happens to me this side of eternity, I have this one assurance, that I am his and he is mine. Is that what can be said of every single one of us? Make your confession. Acknowledge him as your only surety for time and for eternity. Because, as the apostle says, without him you can do nothing. Without him you have nothing. That's why it's a plain and simple prayer of this man. Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. He couldn't say anything that would in any way 
purchase his way into heaven just by faith in Jesus Christ. Except you become as little children, you will in no wise enter the kingdom. Except you and I become like this man, whatever our deeds have been, whatever might be our demise or the very nature of our demise, we are still dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ who says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Do you believe in Christ's forgiveness? Well, I know fine that those who will sit at the table believe in Christ's forgiveness. But do we all in here believe in Christ's forgiveness? Where are we in relation to our sin? Are we still under condemnation? Or have we been set free? There is now therefore no condemnation. Now, this moment, if you put your trust in Jesus, you don't have to wait. Just put your trust in him. There is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. May the Lord grant unto each and every one of us an awareness of what Christ can do. A Christ who suffered and died on the cross and whose word and testimony, yes, was to one a saver of death, but to another gloriously a saver of life. Is that what he is for you and for me this afternoon? Shall we pray? O eternal and ever-blessed God, we are indeed a people saved by grace. There is nothing meritorious in us, nothing that in any way could bring to us the love of Jesus. We who were dead in trespasses and sins have been not brought nigh by his blood. He loved us so much, he gave himself for us. And we do thank thee for the grace of faith that enables us to do as with the psalmist. When he admitted and he exclaimed, Lo, I do stretch my hands to thee, my help alone, for thou well understands all my complaint and moan. May none of us, O Lord, leave this place with souls that are empty or devoid of the things that matter most. Go before us then, forgiving all offence, loving us in him. Amen. Now we come to that part of our service, which has traditionally been spoken of as the fencing of the table. I'm always very conscious in this one, because as every preacher of the gospel must contemplate one's own position in relation to the table of the Lord. The Lord's table is a place for those who put their trust in him. Those who have submitted themselves humbly and meekly. Those who have exercised a desire above all things to be in the very presence of Christ. I want to come back to this in a moment or two. But I'm always reminded of the words of Psalm 27. One thing I desire of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Let me turn to those words that have often been read at this time. I don't know, maybe in some places they are not being read the same, but I think they are appropriate, provided we approach them appropriately. They are not to condemn. They are there to cause an exercise in your heart and mind and spirit that we would acknowledge our own frailties and our own weaknesses, but by the grace of God being enabled to overcome. Let me read the words of Galatians uh, chapter 5. This I say, reading at verse 16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. 
For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And there are con- these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. But if you be led of the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, <coughs> revelings, and the such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law, and they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. There's a little statement in there that again has got a, a drawing of it to what the thief in the cross said. Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And what we are told here is those of us who act the way that would be the way of the world, we are in danger of not inheriting the kingdom of God, as it says there at the end of verse 21. That's a status that none of us wants to be in. But these two, these lists that the apostle draws our attention to, which would suggest to us the walking in the flesh or the walking in the spirit, and these are contrary things. And sometimes we are aware and maybe very conscious of the sins that do so, do so easily beset us. And there are sins in every one of us. They may be hidden from other people, but they are not hidden from God. In fact, those of us who would in any way suggest that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But in this sense also, if we believe truly and righteously that the Lord Jesus has dealt with our sin, he has taken it away. He has dealt with us, we dealt with it in his own body on the tree. Let me turn for a few moments. We sang in Psalm 15 there, and I would suggest that this psalm is a good preparation any time we are found making, committing ourselves to Christ in a special way, like remembering his death. Because in Psalm 15, there are all the elements there for those of us who would want to be in the tabernacle of God, in the very presence of God, to be acceptable before God. It ought to be the great desire of your heart and mine to have this life of ours in Christ Jesus in a very similar way in which it is spoken of here. Let me read it again, but this time from the authorised version. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? Important questions, and they may make us shudder at times. And especially when we are told those who have access into the very presence of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He that walks uprightly and works and worketh righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doth evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose eyes a vile person is condemned. But he honoreth them that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own heart and changeth not. 
He that putteth not his money to usury, nor takes reward against the innocent, he that does these things shall never be moved. We're coming to the table, we're sitting at the table, not dependent on ourselves, but dependent upon him. And what we want out of our lives in Christ Jesus is to become more and more like Christ. If there is any element of doubt within us at all about our walk and our conversation that is not up to standard, ask yourself this question. Do you want to be freed from all the vagaries of the evil one? Well, after all, Jesus knows you you do. Is that not what he meant when he said in those great words that are recorded for us in his intercessory prayer? Listen to what he says. I pray not that thou should take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil. That is the longing of the heart of every single believer, that Christ would keep the evil one at bay. He is ever there, he is ever the tempter, and he's always waiting for his opportune moment. But again, we don't have to go far down scripture to find the examples of those who have to a degree fallen over at each time the Lord picks them up in the same way that he has done for you. Even things that other people may not know about. But as you repent and believe and put your trust in him, and as you, as it were, remove all this idea of self-preservation, he is the one that will keep you. He will keep you from falling. He is the one that will sustain you. He's the one who will pick you up. So if today you're one of those who recognizes your own failings and shortcomings, but also know where the source and the fountain of life is for you, even when you stumble, lean upon him, cast the burden upon him. What you want out of Christ and Christ living in you is this. But again, the Apostle Paul says elsewhere, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. There's the word. He became obedient. Let us exercise obedience toward him in everything, but especially if you love him, sit at his table. It's always good for us to understand that what we do within the Church of Christ must have a biblical authority. And of course, I'm sure there are some changes in different places to the way that we do things. But the sentiments and the central theme of it all is found in Scripture for us. And when we think of the Lord's Supper, we know fine as we've been given authority to dispense that supper according as was shown by the example of the Lord Jesus Christ in the upper room. And we have an account of that authority given to us through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians and chapter 11. And if I might read that for a moment or two. For I received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take heat. This is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also, he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, 
This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. But as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat the bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of Christ. But let him love the Lord, and let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. The Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread and gave thanks. And shall we follow this example in his prayer? O Lord, our gracious God, thou hast set before us the token of thy love and favour, a reminder to us every day, not just on a communion Sabbath, but that thou didst lay down thy life for ransom for thy people. Thy blood was shed. And we do thank thee, our God, that thou hast set before us those things that might be used for a temporal purpose, but now they have been set before us for spiritual use. We pray that we might recognize with thankful hearts what that provision means for those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This do, he says, in remembrance of me. The soul of the believer reverberates. How can I forget what the Lord has done for me? How can I forget the provision that he makes for me every single day of my life as one who was born at a due season? How can I forget that the Lord's hand is not short that it cannot save, neither is he heavy, neither and I receive heavy, and O Lord, we pray that thou wouldst grant unto us to receive of these tokens of thy love and favour, with that measure of faith that will bring glory and honour to thy name. We pray that what we are doing at this time would not be just an exercise of tradition, however significant that might be within the calendar of the church. May it always be spurred on because Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Continue with us then, O Lord, and keep our thoughts central upon the one whom the souls of thy believer loves. Keep us ever looking unto him. This is our privilege, this is our blessing. Guide us then and take away all offense, loving us in Him. Amen. I'd like just for a few moments to gather a few thoughts. And I don't make any apology if others here might have heard me speaking of this at a table before, maybe with another congregation. Because I think what it portrays, and I mentioned it earlier on in the pulpit, is the sentiments that are found. In the soul of the believer that is really hungering and thirsting, it is exercising a practice following what Jesus says, 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. In the book of Psalms, in Psalm 27, there are statements there that again I'm sure will resonate with you as individuals. Words that encourage the believer, words that lift the believer up, even especially at times when we know the evil one ever around us. The psalmist begins that psalm by saying, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? David had many enemies of that, there's no doubt. But I doubt if there are any more enemies than you and I have, because we know the devil as his army. But we don't have to be afraid, because the Lord is our light and our salvation. But then David gives us an inclination as to the strength of everything that he has, the assurance that he has, because of what God has done for him in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's that that he seeks after all the days of his life. Listen to what he says in these words, in verse 4. He says this, One thing he says, I desire of the Lord. That will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Something of what he mentioned in Psalm 15, within my tabernacle, Lord, who shall abide with thee? The hungry soul, the thirsty soul, the soul that longs and believes. And this is the one overriding desire of the psalmist. There may be legitimate desires in our lives, and there may be legitimate things that impinge upon our lives day by day, and some of them can be a great distraction to us. But the overwhelming desire of every single believer in Christ is to have fellowship with him. And where can you have that better but in the house of God with those who are like-minded with him, with us? Where better is it for us to be week by week at the prayer meeting, even in our house fellowships? And I say this by way of aside, it's always been one of my privileges to enjoy, and I've come up to Lewis many times, and to enjoy fellowship in the home with other people talking about their experience in the Lord and how they, as it were, strengthen one another. What the psalmist desire is, I want to be in the presence of Jesus. And of course it's important for us to do that at home, in our own closet. Yes, that is true. But it's also so important for us to strengthen one another. You know, those who love the Lord, they speak often with one another. And I know how easy it is to be partying with a group of Christian people. And all that we are talking about are things that are secular. It takes us ages maybe for us to move on to the spiritual and that which really enlightens the soul. And that's why I say, my experience coming up to Lewis at these fellowships was, I didn't say, I would use the expression always, I felt my batteries recharged, spiritually charged, with the sentiments of those of the brethren, the ladies of the brethren, who were joined together in unity, but much more so here. Here we are, all one in Christ Jesus, 
sitting at the table, waiting anticipatingly for a crumb from the master's table. One thing I desire of the Lord, that when I sit after, that I may dwell, let's put it this way, I may dwell in the presence of the Lord all the days of my life. Not just one day or two days a year or whatever, but every single day rejoicing, glorying in the fellowship that we have one with another. And I don't want to pull these things any longer from you. But once again, we read this on the night that Jesus was betrayed. He took bread and having given thanks, he baked it and he said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner, he also took the cup, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as ye drink it, in remembrance of me. But as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth the Lord's death till
was known of one of old, preacher of old, who was conducting a communion service somewhere. And he saw this lady further back from the table, and she was weeping. And she got the elders, told them to take the bread and the wine with you and follow me. And he said to the woman sitting there, weeping, he said this, We're going to conclude by singing in Psalm 72.
now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, the fellowship and the comfort of the Holy Spirit rest upon and remain with you and with all the Israel of God, both now and always. Amen.